Good morning. This morning we are continuing with our teaching series that's taking us through a lot of the fall. And this is a series where we're asking questions. Faith. Questions are good. Questions help us to investigate. They help us to grow. They help us to figure out what we believe and why. Questions help us have depth in our life. And so we want to embrace questions and seek answers in them. That's what we're going to be doing uh, in these weeks. And the question today is a question that comes from John chapter 6. And it's a question that the disciples ask to Jesus. And it is a question that I think has particular importance for us as a church, both this week, but also as we prepare for next week. Next week is Pledge Sunday here at Covenant. That's why you have the pledge cards in your chairs. Um, And it's an important time for us. So we're going to bring the scripture passage up here. It's verses 1 through 14. And I invite us just to take in God's word to us today. After this, Jesus went out to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, also called the Sea of Tiberias. A large crowd kept following him because they saw the signs that he was doing for the sick. Jesus went up the mountain and sat down there with his disciples. Now the Passover, the festival of the Jews, was near. When he looked up and saw a large crowd coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread for these people to eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. Philip answered him, Six months' wages would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. One of his other disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they among so many people? Jesus said, make the people sit down. Now there was a great deal of grass in the place, so they sat down about 5,000 in all. Then Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. So they gathered them up, and from the fragments of the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten, they filled 12 baskets. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they began to say, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. We're going to end there. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask that no matter who we are or how we walk in here, that we would experience you today and that you would change our minds and our hearts to reflect your glory in this world. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so just to set the scene for us for a second, this is early in Jesus' ministry. He hasn't been teaching and doing ministry for very long, but as they are, uh, uh, as he's out there with his disciples teaching about the kingdom of God and and, uh, people are experiencing his ministry, there's people that start gathering from all over. Crowds start coming from all the different towns and villages, and they're in a really rural area here. But as they're all gathering and as they're coming together, they are there because they have needs in their life. And what I want us to see this morning is that when it comes to the crowd that gathers here, there's kind of two levels of need that I want us to acknowledge. The first is what I would call a spiritual need that exists in the people. And the second level is that there is a practical need that comes with it. Okay? These two kind of hungers that are there. Now, the first of them is why the people are gathering. They're gathering because they desire to be near Jesus. Jesus has this life and this love that is flowing from him, and people are drawn to it, as people will be today as they experience Jesus. Henry David Thoreau was a philosopher who wrote a couple of hundred years ago in this country, and he said, most people live lives of quiet desperation. Most people live lives of quiet desperation. They are looking for meaning in their life. We are designed to know why we exist. 
There's a hunger in us for that. That's why these folks are gathering, leaving their villages to come together. And so that is true today. We still are in a world where people are desperate for meaning and they look for it in all different kinds of ways. And it was true 2,000 years ago around the Sea of Galilee. Most people were living lives of quiet desperation, searching for what life is about and what gives them meaning beyond just you know, having a job and having a career and being successful and having successful kids and then a rinse and repeat cycle generation after generation after generation. What makes life worth living? And they see it in Jesus, and they start gathering around Jesus because they want to be there in that life. There's that uh, spiritual hunger and need that is there, and Jesus meets that hunger and that need. But secondly, what comes with it is a practical needs, okay? In this case, what are they going to eat? They're going to be hungry. Now, Jesus doesn't look at them um, and, and condemn them for that. I mean, this is a tough time. If you're looking for food, there's no Chick-fil-A uh, not that that would help you on a Sunday, but there's no Chick-fil-A, there's no Whataburger, there's no H-E-B for you to go in. These people are gathered there, and there's nothing for them to eat. And Jesus also doesn't look at them and say, well, if you were an Eagle Scout, you would know to be prepared, right? And so it's your own fault you don't have food. And so you need to look in the mirror and examine yourself for why you don't have food. He doesn't do that either. What he says is, is just like we met the spiritual needs, and these people are here, we need to take care of their practical needs as well. How do we feed them? So he looks at his disciples, and he looks at Philip, and he says, what are we going to do about the hunger that's there? And Philip's like, I don't know. There's no chance that six months' wages won't buy enough food for these people to eat. But then Andrew, one of his other disciples, goes, but I see this little boy, and this little boy has some food with him. Does he have a lot? Nope but he has five loaves of bread and two fish, probably enough to feed just a tiny fraction of the 5,000 people that are there. But Jesus takes that bread and those fish, and he prays over it, and he gets the disciples to seat the people down, and somehow a miracle happens, and they all eat from that little bit of food, and it says that each of them was satisfied, and there were leftovers that were there. Jesus is asked a question by Andrew that is the question I want to guide us today in this series about questions. That when he takes these five loaves of bread and two fish, Andrew goes, what good are they among so many? And that's the question I want us to think about today. But I don't want us to just think about it as individuals. I also want us to think about it as a congregation today, as a church. I want us to take some time as we get ready for next Sunday, Pledge Sunday, when we pledge our finances to support the budget of this church next year. I want us to think a minute for today about what this scripture passage has to say to us about where we've been as a church, about where we are as a church, and maybe where God is calling us to go as a church. Because what I believe is like every year, Pledge Sunday comes around and it's really important. And Pledge Sunday is always important because it's one of those few times when we have to figure out how to align our actions with our words. We talk about generosity and giving, but most of us talk about it more than doing it. And this is one of those times where individually we have to say, are my actions going to follow what I say that the world should look like or am I just going to talk about what people should be doing? And then we as a church have to build a budget that says, does our budget look like what the kingdom of God might want it to be? Are we moving towards alignment with that? Or are we just spending things the way we want to spend it? This is a time both individually as a church when we can align. Because it's always an important thing to look at the gap between what you say you want to be about and what your life actually looks like. And Pledge Sunday is a time when we can try to bridge that gap. Not in thought, not in feelings, but in practical ways. But I believe that in the almost 60 years of this congregation, this coming Pledge Sunday is one of the most critical we have ever had. 
because it's going to reveal to us about the kind of church we are and the kind of church we want to be. Now, that might feel melodramatic to you guys. Like, you might be sitting there going, that feels a bit heavy, right, as we get ready for next week. And maybe it is. Maybe if we look at this Sunday a certain way, we can say that we've had more important ones than this. And that is if we confuse sometimes what is an ending and what is a beginning. That can happen to us in faith, where we confuse what is a season coming to an end versus a season beginning. If this is a season coming to an end, then I'm just being dramatic. Then this is not the most critical time. Most critical was about five years ago, how Pledge Sunday was going to go. Okay? We can confuse our beginnings and endings. Um, and the first time I heard about this was while I was in seminary. Uh, because I had a mentor of mine who challenged me on that I was getting my endings and beginnings confused. The mentor of mine was a guy named Daryl Guter, who has spoken here before and some of you have met. And um, as many of you know, my journey to coming to know Jesus was different than most of the people I was in seminary with, right? Most of the people I was in seminary with knew from like the age of two months that they wanted to be a pastor. And they, like, they felt the call, they were raised in the church, they had gone to youth group, they had uh, kind of had this experience in camps, and I want you to know that is a good thing. And I really mean this, I believe that for all the students who have gathered here, that God, I hope, has touched you in different ways, has spoken to you in different ways, and some of you may even be called to be a pastor someday, or a ministry leader. God does that, so I don't want to disparage that at any level in any way, but my journey did not look like that. I was not raised in the church. I never went to a fall retreat. I didn't get to do any of the things that y'all did. I was raised outside of the church, and I came to faith after college while living in Japan. I lived there for two years, and it was in a small church run by two Norwegian missionaries that faith in Jesus became real, that I became a Christian, and it's a long story, and I'll tell you about it a different time if you don't know that story, but... My point is, when I showed up at seminary, everyone else was like, I have always known I wanted to be a pastor. And I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing here. I don't know. Like, it's like, did you think about this seminary or that seminary? Were you in the Presbyterian Church or this? I'm like, are there other seminaries like this? Like, do these things exist in the world? I had gone to Japan to study Buddhism and to get a PhD eventually in philosophy and teach. That's what I was going to do. And then I came back two years later wanting to explore vocational ministry and being married to a Welsh woman. And my parents were like, what just happened um, in all of this? So in seminary, I would tell the story a lot because everyone else's stories were like very, very similar and mine was really different. But finally, one day after I told the story about Japan and coming to faith and all this stuff, uh, I had a, my advisor, Dr. Guter, came up to me. He's like, you know, you tell this story like it's the greatest story that God has ever done in the world. And like that it's the high point of your whole life. You treat it like an ending. You're mixing up your endings and your beginnings. He said, sometimes in the church we do that. Our conversion stories are what the ending point is. That's the goal of everything. He said, biblically, when you came to faith was not the ending of anything. That's when the starting gun went off. Now the question is, what kind of life are you going to live? He said, if you come to the end of your life and the best spiritual story you have is when you came to faith, you missed what God had for you. What is a life of purpose and joy and fulfillment in this world of following God's plan for your life? We mix up our beginnings and our endings. Is this an ending of a season at covenant or is it the beginning of a season at covenant? Because if you see this as the ending of a season, well, this isn't that critical. Five years ago was far more critical. By any metric, by any traditional metric of a church that has been used, covenant is healthy right now. We are growing in our membership. We're growing in our worship attendance. We are obviously growing in our youth program. We are uh, growing in our giving. We are growing in the amount of money we're giving away. We uh, also are coming to the end of a season where we have been operating with a, uh, with a bunch of debt. 
We're so grateful for our campus and particularly grateful for this building. This building is now the centerpiece of our campus. This building, which, we is, which was the reason we had debt, this building is a building that is used probably more than every other building on our campus put together. This building is the center of, Co- of life at Covenant right now, and I give thanks for it. But we had about $8 million of debt that we were paying out of our operating budget. So every month we were having to pay for that. So we said a few years ago, well, let's do a capital campaign to seek to lower the debt. We didn't even have a goal because it's like, whether you raise 2 million or 3 million or 4 million, it doesn't matter, it helps. Genuinely, more than what any of us thought, we have, God has been so good to us in this and you all have responded and given in so many different ways. And in a few months, at the end of 2018, we are going to be debt-free as a congregation. It exceeded what any of us thought was absolutely possible. And, and that is, is it's, it's, an, it's an incredibly exciting thing. And so today we're announcing there's a new building that we're gonna, that just went on the, online right now. That just, that's on the internet. And so we are at a point that this church has not been at in a long time, which is in a place of relative health. And so what are we going to do with that? Are we ending an era? A couple years ago, I quoted a pastor, Scott Dudley from Bellevue Press. He said that the point of every church is to become internally strong in order to be externally focused. Internally strong in order to be externally focused. And while there is always strengthening internally we can do, I think we can sit here today and say we're in a relatively strong place internally. The reason next Sunday is so critical is are we going to use that strength to turn ourselves outward to the world and the spiritual and practical needs of the world around us? Or are we going to do some spiritual navel gazing and pat ourselves on the back because of where we are? That's why this is so critical. The only value that the church has is on the impact it makes on the lives of people outside of these walls. God's dream for the church is not to be a sound financial institution. It's important that we're a sound financial institution, but that's not God's dream for us. If that's the dream, then we're coming to the end of an era, and we can just pop it into neutral and coast for a little while. As many of you know, in high school, I was a basketball player. I was a bad player on a really good team, uh, which is not a good combination. You want to be a good player on a good team, or at least a good player on a bad team. I was on a really good team, and I was not that good uh, on it. Now, when I was like 12 or 13, I had been a good player on a good team. But as I got older, from like 13, 14, 15, 16, something happened where everyone got more athletic and I didn't, which in basketball is not a good thing. And so at about 16, I decided that one of the reasons that I wasn't doing as well in basketball anymore was I needed a new pair of shoes. I needed some Air Jordans because I wanted to be like Mike. Because if I was like Mike and got some Air Jordans, then life would be better. So I went to my father, who was a very cheap person, as I inherited from him, and said, to him is like, Dad, you've given me like the cheapest shoes that exist. Um, I need some Air Jordans. If I had some Air Jordans, I'd be playing better. And he goes, that's fascinating. I said, I want some Air Jordans. He said, I bet you do. And I said, will you buy me some? He said, no, I will not. If you want some Air Jordans, you are going to have to save your money and go get them. Now, I was 16. I had had to buy my own car, and I'd been working for a couple of years to save my money for that. I had to pay for gasoline, and I had to pay for insurance every month. So I was saving a lot already to pay for this. So to buy a new pair of Air Jordans on top of all of that was a stretch. 
But I decided it was worth it, and so I saved even more on that. And right before basketball season, I had enough money. I went into the store, and I bought a brand-new pair of Air Jordans. It's going to make me in basketball this year. Brought them home in a basket. I opened them up in my room. I look at them. They're shiny. They're beautiful. They're nice. The nicest shoes I've ever owned. And I looked at them. I'm like, I can't wear these. They're too nice. If I wore them out there, they're going to get like sweaty and they're going to get like, you know, dirty and someone's going to step on them and it's just, it's going to ruin them. And so what I need to do is I just want to leave them here in the box to admire how nice they are. And I did that for like a solid week. I just kept wearing the cheap shoes my dad had bought me and I had these Air Jordans in a box in my room. Finally, one day, one of my best friends on the team looked at me and he's like, dude, I thought you bought new shoes. And I said, I did, um, but I've got them at home in a box so they don't get dirty. And he looked at me, he goes, you need to start wearing them. Number one, you need all the help you can get. (laughs) But number two, they're basketball shoes. They have no purpose in this world except wearing them to play basketball. That's the only reason they were made. If you don't wear them to play basketball, they they are two expensive pieces of leather sitting in a box in your home. That is their function. The function of the church is not to be a healthy institution. This is the point where we could go, oh, things are really good. We don't want it to get broken. We don't want it to get dirty. We don't want it to get changed. And so what we're going to do is we're just going to kind of keep it protected here. This is the moment where we're going to choose a path or the other. Are we going to pay attention to the world outside of us, or are we going to look at ourselves and do a lot of patting ourselves on the back? Now, I want to say today that Meeting the practical and the spiritual needs of the surrounding community is not something that starts today, and I want to acknowledge that. Covenant has been doing that for decades. When it comes to the spiritual needs of Austin and the world, there are people in this church who have come to know Jesus through the ministry of this church, that God went from a distant intellectual concept that they debated to a personal God whom they know. And I hope that many of us continue to experience that. Covenant has has met in many ways, the spiritual needs of his community, as well as the practical needs of his community. I was in Cuba last week. I was part of a long-term relationship that we have with our neighbors in Cuba that's developed over decades at this church. I got to preach in a congregation last week in Cuba, and it was a wonderful thing. That all happened because of caring for the spiritual and practical needs, and there's so many more examples of that. It's not that it starts now, but friends, we have a unique opportunity right now a unique opportunity to be in a very healthy place as a church and to decide what God wants us to do with that. Because like we see in the crowd here, the spiritual and the practical needs of Austin and the world have not diminished or gone away. When it looks at the spiritual needs of Austin today and of our world today, what I mostly see is people who are completely uninterested in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we might have to own our part in that. But... What we have basically agreed on as a culture is that you can believe what you believe and I'll believe what I'll believe and the thing we agree on is that we're going to all in the center be really, 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 really nice people. And then we're going to teach our children to be really, 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 really good people as long as they're on the honor roll and they play in sports and they can get in the top 6% so they can go to UT. Once they're doing that, we wanted to do them with a smile on their face and be really nice once they've made all those achievements. And as long as you are really, 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 really nice and your children are really, really, really nice and I'm really, really, really nice and our kids are really, really nice, then the world is just going to become a super swell place. That's actually exactly right. Has it ever happened before in human history? Nope. 
Has it ever worked before at any point in human history? Nope. But darn it, we're going to keep trying and just trust that this year we can all be nice enough that the world just kind of does this. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not about learning to become nice. It is not about rules and morality and guilt. The gospel of Jesus Christ is that we are not just swell people living in a swell world. That the truth of the matter that we don't have to hide is that we are broken people. That we are selfish people and egotistical people. We are people who gossip about other people. We're people that feel good when others suffer because it makes us more important. We have all kinds of things that go in our life. We are greedy and like spending money on ourselves and what we want. Want, and that we like our lives the way we like it. And the fact is, is that, that, that the gospel and truth comes when we say, that's actually the truth. I'm not actually all that nice, and here's the news, neither are you. And the moment we say that and admit that, then that becomes the point where we realize that God doesn't condemn us or give us rules or, or guilt. God says, I love you just as you are. And I want you to feel my love for you. I want you to feel grace. I want you to feel forgiveness. And I want you to feel free of the burden of trying to just follow rules and laws. Christianity is not about teaching you to do more stuff. It's about a celebration that God loves you exactly as you are. And that then we go out into this world talking to the whole world about God's love, about God's truth, about God's grace, about God's forgiveness. That is the good news. And we still live in a world where people are living lives of quiet desperation. They will not hear this gospel, this good news, if not for us. The spiritual needs in our world today are just as real as they have ever been. And being nice gets us nowhere. But what about the practical needs? We certainly in our world today talk a lot about progress and the progress that we're making. Really? Slavery is, a, is more alive today than at any point in human history. There is greed. There is disparity between the haves and the have-nots. There is gossip. There is injustice. There is bigotry. There is racism. And being nice solves none of it. It masks it. The practical needs in Austin and around the world are exactly what God wants to do to meet the hunger and the needs of the world around us. Are we going to use this time to pat ourselves on the back for where we are? Or is that, is that the ending of our story? Or is today the beginning of when we can, for the first time in years, squarely focus ourselves on how we meet the needs of the surrounding crowd and community? We're at that point, and next week is so critical for us responding. Because Pledge Sunday is one thing, right? Well, I can do that. We've done that. We've done that as a church. It's a different thing when you look at the spiritual and practical needs of the world. And it might be attempting at that point to react like the gospel, like the, like the disciples in the gospel. We might look at the practical needs of Austin, the practical needs of the world, the spiritual needs of the world, and go, what can I do to that? What can, what, what can my offering next week do to change the practical needs in a global world with all that's going on? What can my offering do to change that? What can one congregation do? What can one church in Austin do in the face of all of the spiritual and practical needs in the world? And the answer is it makes all the difference in the world. Because God takes five loaves of bread and two fish, when Andrew looks at him and says, what good are these among so many? And God feeds thousands. May we follow the lead of this child 
as we prepare ourselves for next week. Not so that we just become stronger ourselves, but that we can be used by God to meet and change the needs of the world around us. That's why we're here. What a glorious trip God has taken us on. But oh, how glorious the next chapter might be. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we do ask that you would help us to see and to respond with love to the needs of the world around us, the practical and the spiritual. We pray, Lord, that you would use us to be the kind of church that points ourselves outward now, to ask ourselves how much more are you calling us to do, and that you would take what little we can offer as a congregation, as individuals, and that you would multiply it like the fish and the loaves so that thousands and thousands more lives are changed where hunger is met and assuaged in every form that we find it. We pray for your leading and your guiding on our church this day, this week, and always. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.